0: Section 1 of The Letters of a Post-Impressionist. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Solog. The Letters of a Post-Impressionist by Vincent Van Gogh. Translated by Anthony Mario Ludovici. Section 1 introductory essay part 1 introductory essay on Van Gogh and his art though the collection of letters contained in Kasserer's publication Vincent van Gogh brief is not a complete one from my knowledge of a very large number of the letters which are not included in this volume I feel able to say that the present selection is in any case very representative of and contains all that is essential in respect to van gogh's art credo and general attitude of mind for reasons into which it is unnecessary for me to enter here it was found convenient to adopt the form of casserer's publication arranged by marguerite mauthner and my translation has therefore been made from the german fourth edition nineteen hundred eleven still With the view of avoiding the errors which were bound to creep into a double translation of this sort, I took care, when my version was complete, to compare it with as many of the original French letters as I was able to find, and I am glad to say that by this means I succeeded in satisfying myself as to the accuracy of every line from page 39 to the end. The letters printed up to page 38, some of which I fancy must have been written in Dutch, A language which in any case I could not have read, have not been compared with the originals. But, seeing that the general quality of the German translation of the letters after page thirty nine was so good that I was able to discover only the small handful of inaccuracies referred to in the appendix, I think the reader may rest assured that the matter covering pages one to thirty eight is sufficiently trustworthy for all ordinary purposes. I say that I fancy some of the letters which occur between pages 1 and 38 were written in Dutch, for I am not by any means certain of this. In any case, I can vouch for the fact that the originals of all the letters after page 38 were in French, as I have seen them. But in this respect, Paul Gauguin's remark about his friend Van Gogh is not without interest. Il oubliait même. Wrote the famous painter of negresses, de Creu la et comme on a pouvoir par la publication de ses lettres à son frère, il n'écrivait jamais qu'en français, et cela admirablement avec des tonques, quant à en en plus finir Rather than disfigure my pages with a quantity of notes, I preferred to put my remarks relative to the divergencies between the original French and the German. In the form of an appendix, to which the numbers 1 to 35 in the text refer, and have thus kept only those notes in the text which were indispensable for the proper understanding of the book. Be this as it may, the inaccuracies and doubts discussed in the appendix are, on the whole, of such slight import that those readers who do not wish to be interrupted by pedantic quibbles will be well advised if they simply read straight on without heeding the figures in the text to protect myself against fault-finders however such readers will understand that it was necessary for me to prepare some sort of a list referring to those passages which in the german differed even slightly from the french original in the letters not included in cassero's publication there are of course a few passages which for obvious reasons Could never have been brought before the German or English reading public. As will be seen, however, the present letters in themselves are but more or less lengthy fragments, carefully edited by the friends of the deceased painter, while the almost complete omission of dates and other biographical information usually accompanying a volume of this sort may also at first be felt as a rather disturbing blemish. I would like, however, to seize this opportunity to defend Marguerite Mavner against the charge of having made a fantastic arrangement of these letters. For if the person who made this charge had only been acquainted with the facts of the case, he would have known that she had done no more, at least from page 39 onwards, than faithfully to follow Emile Bernard's original arrangement of his friend's correspondence in the Mercure de France. And surely we must assume that Emile Bernard Van Gogh's devoted admirer was the best judge as to what should or should not appear of all that his friend had written. With regard to dates, however, Emile Bernard does give a little more information than Marguerite Mouvner, but it is very little, and it is as follows The letters to E. Bernard from page thirty nine to page seventy three were written during eighteen hundred eighty seven. Those from page seventy three to page eighty six were written during 1888. Those from page 108 to page 112 were written during 1889. And the remainder, as Marguerite Mouthner also tells us, were written during 1890. Of the letters to Van Gogh's brother, I am afraid I can say nothing more definite than that all those which occur after page 87 were written in Arles and probably San Remy between 1887 and 1890. Now, postponing for a moment the discussion of Van Gogh's actual place in the history of the art of the 19th century, and bearing in mind the amount of adverse criticism with which his work has met for many years, it does not seem irrelevant here to lay stress upon the fact that these letters are all private, intimate communications, never intended to reach the public eye. And I feel all the more inclined to emphasize this point, seeing that, to the lay student of art, as also to the art student himself, it is often a difficult task to take the sincerity of the art innovator for granted. Confronted with a new technique, an apparently unprecedented conception of the outer world, faced, in fact, by a patch of strange blood, for that is what it comes to after all. We are prone to doubt that our man is bona fide, filled with the prejudices and prepossessions of centuries, and knowing from sad experience that the art world is not without its arch humbugs. We find it difficult to believe that such a strange and foreign grasp of reality could actually have been felt by the innovator in our midst. And rather than question our own values and our own grasp of reality, we instinctively, And as I think, very healthily, inclined to doubt the sincerity of the representative of this new standpoint which is offensive to us. In Van Gogh's case, however, we are particularly fortunate, for we possess these letters, which are proof enough of the sincerity with which he pursued his calling. And as I say, he did not write them for the press, nor did he compose them as a conscious teacher. They simply took shape quite naturally in his moments of respite when he felt the need of unburdening his heart to some sympathetic listener and in writing them he was as ingenuous and unembarrassed as a child he wrote to his brother and to a bosom friend emile bernard as i have mentioned a good deal in these letters had to be suppressed and very naturally too for if this correspondence had not contained much that was of too intimate a character for publication it is obvious that the very parts that were considered publishable would not have had a quarter of the value which we must now ascribe to them it is precisely because these letters are as it were soliloquies which van gogh held in the presence of his own soul that they seem to me to be of such incalculable value to all who think and work in the domain of art and even in the domain of psychology and morality to-day For everyone who is acquainted with the literature of aesthetic must know how poor we are in human documents of this nature, and how comparatively valueless the greater part even of our poor treasure is, when it is compared with the profound works which men who were not themselves painters or sculptors have contributed to our literature on the subject. Who has not been disappointed on reading Ghiberti's commentaries, Leonardo's notebooks, Vasari's discourses on technique, Antoine Raphael Meng's treatises, Hogarth's analysis of beauty, Reynolds' discourses, Alfred Stevens' aphorisms, etc. But who has not felt that he was foredoomed to disappointment in each case? For an artist who could express the why and the how of his productions and words to wield the chisel or the brush with any special power, The way in which one chooses to express oneself is no accident. It is determined by the very source of one's artistic passion. A true painter expresses himself best in paint. With Van Gogh's letters, however, we are not concerned with a painter who is writing a textbook for posterity, or undertaking to teach anybody his art, or to reveal the secrets of it to his fellows. The communications to his brother and his friend, printed in this volume, partake much more of the nature of a running commentary to his life-work, a Sabbath's meditation upon, and contemplation of his six days' labor, than a series of technical discourses relating to his procedure and its merits. True, technical points arise, but they are merely the fleeting doubts or questionings of an expert chatting intimately with an intimate, and are quite free from any pedagogic or didactic spirit on the other hand however that which he gives us and which the others above mentioned scarcely touch upon is the record of his misgivings and fears concerning the passion that animated him the value of this passion and the meaning of his function as a painter in the midst of civilized europe of the nineteenth century these letters are not only a confession of the fact that he participated heart and soul in the negative revolution of the latter half of that century they are also a revelation of the truth that he himself was a bridge leading out of it to better and more positive things he touches upon these questions lightly as is only fitting in letters that bear other tidings of a more prosaic nature but he never can conceal the earnestness with which he faced the problems that were present in his mind and as a stenographic report of these problems these letters make the strongest claim upon our attention. With regard to his ultimate dementia, I have little doubt myself as to how it was brought about. As in the case of Nietzsche and many other foreign or English poet or thinker, I cannot help suspecting it was the outcome of that protracted concentration of thought upon one or two themes, the chief characteristic of all mania by the by which he and a few other unfortunate and wholehearted men found it necessary to practice in the midst of a bustling changing and feverishly restless age if anything of lasting worth was to be accomplished imagine a man trying to study the laws governing a spinning-top in the midst of the traffic of the city and you have a fair image of the kind of task a sincere artist or thinker undertakes at the present day if he resolves in the midst of the rush and flurry of our age, to probe the deep mystery of that particular part of life to which he may happen to feel himself drawn by his individual tastes and abilities. Not only is he foredoomed to dementia by the circumstance of his occupation, but the very position he assumes, bent over his task amid the racket and thunder of the crowded thoroughfare of modern life, gives him at least the aspect of a madman from the start and Van Gogh himself was perfectly aware of this, for he realized that the claims which nowadays are put upon the energy of one individual concentrated seeker are so enormous that even the complication of marriage may prove one strain too many for him. He admits that the Dutch artists married and begat children, but, he adds, the Dutchman led a peaceful, quiet, and well-ordered life. The trouble is, my dear old Bernard, he says, That giotto and Chimubue, like Holbein and van Eyck, lived in an atmosphere of obelisks, if I may use such an expression, in which everything was arranged with architectural method, in which every individual was a stone or a brick in the general edifice, and all things were interdependent and constituted a monumental social structure. But we, you know, live in the midst of complete laissez-aller and anarchy we artists who love order and symmetry isolate ourselves and work at introducing a little style into some particular portion of the world and this is no empty lament it is a plain statement of the fact that in the disorder and chaos of the present day not only has the artist no place allotted to him but also that the very position he tries to conquer for himself is hedged round with so many petty obstacles and minor personalities that his best and most valuable forces are often squandered in a mere unproductive attempt at attaining his own. That he should need, therefore, to practice the most scrupulous economy with his strength, a precaution which in a well-ordered age, and in a healthier age, would not be necessary, follows as a matter of course. I should consider myself lucky, sighed Van Gogh, to be able to work even for an annuity which would only just cover bare necessaries and to be at peace in my own studio for the rest of my life without his brother theodore's devotion and material help it is impossible to think without alarm of what might have become of this undoubted genius for it must be remembered that his brother practically kept him from his hague days in eighteen hundred eighty one until the very end in eighteen hundred ninety at auvers sur oise it is only when we think of the irretrievable loss which we owe to the fact that monet himself had to remain idle for six months for want of money that we can possibly form any conception of what the result would have been if theodore van gogh had ever lost faith in his elder brother and had stopped or considerably reduced his supplies or had ever accepted his offer to change his calling On the other hand, we have evidence enough in these letters to show that Vincent took his self-sacrifice on his brother's part by no means lightly. We have only to see the solicitude with which he speaks of his brother's exhausting work, and of his health, in order to realize that it was no mean egoism that prompted him to accept this position of a dependent and of a protege. In fact, if we value his art at all, it is with bated breath, THAT WE READ OF THE CHEERFUL AND STOICAL MANNER WITH WHICH, FOR HIS BROTHER'S SAKE, VINCENT STOPPED PAINTING FOR A WHILE. BUT THE WORDS WILL BEAR BEING REPEATED. I AM NOT SO VERY MUCH ATTACHED TO MY PICTURES, HE SAYS, AND WILL DROP THEM WITHOUT A MURMUR, FOR LUCKILY I DO NOT BELONG TO THOSE WHO IN THE MATTER OF WORKS OF ART CAN APPRECIATE ONLY PICTURES, AS I BELIEVE, ON THE CONTRARY, THAT A WORK OF ART MAY BE PRODUCED AT MUCH LESS EXPENSE. I have begun a series of drawings. Again and again he complains of the cost of paint and canvas, and to have allowed him carte blanche in the purchase of these materials, the brother must, considering his circumstances, have been capable not only of very exceptional generous feeling, but of very high artistic emotion as well. For it must have been no easy matter for this employee of Messrs. Bousseau and Valadon to have worked year in and year out and without any certain prospect of recovering his outlay to have paid these monthly bills for vincent's keep and vincent's work it is true that occasionally a picture of vincent's would sell but in those days prices were low and even vincent himself was often willing to accept a five-franc piece for a study besides the expenses must have been made all the heavier thanks to vincent's inveterate carelessness and lack of order in little things, and there can be no doubt that a fair portion of the materials purchased must have been literally wasted if not lost. Gauguin, speaking of his meeting with van Gogh in Arles, writes as follows tout d'abord, je trouvais en tout et pour tout un désordre qui me choquait. La boîte de couleur suffisait à peine à contenir tous ces tubes pressés tout se désordre, tout gachis en tout les sur la toile, still both Van Gogh and his brother had an indomitable faith in the former's work- a faith which touches upon the sublime, though neither of them lived to see their highest hopes realized as to the market value of my pictures. Vincent wrote, I should be very much surprised if, in time, they did not sell as well as other people's whether this happens directly or later on does not matter to me the finest words concerning this ideal brotherly relationship however have been written by vincent's great friend emile bernard mais ce que je veux dire avant tout says bernard c'est que ces deux frères ne faisaient pour ainsi dire qu'une idée s'alimentait de de la vie et de la pensée de l'autre et que quand ce dernier le peintre mourut l'autre le suivit dans le tombe seulement monde quelques mois sous la fait de chagrin rare et edifiant. thus theodore and vincent died perhaps hoping but little believing that van gogh's present triumph would ever be realized and indeed even to the calm and reflecting student of art to-day there must be something surprising something not altogether sound and convincing in the stupendous leap into fame which the work of this poor enthusiastic and thoughtful recluse has made within recent years if the means or the measure for placing him had been to hand if all this posthumous success had been based upon a definite art doctrine which knew what to select and what to leave aside nothing could have been more imposing than the sudden exaltation of one whom a former generation had spurned But who would dare to maintain for a moment that Van Gogh's present position is in itself a proof of his value as an artist? It is an empty illusion to suppose that history necessarily places a man, or even a whole age, and gives to both their proper level. What history has shown, and probably will continue to show, is that, whereas time very often elevates true geniuses to the dignity which is their due, and confers upon them the rank that they deserve, it also certainly raises vast numbers to the position of classics who never had a tittle of a right to that honour and frequently passes over others in silence who ought to have had a lasting claim upon the respect and appreciation of their fellows such things have happened so often and sometimes with such a disastrous effect that one can but feel surprised at the almost universal support that the doctrine of the infallibility of posterity enjoys all posthumous fame however should be weighed in relation to the quality of the period that concedes it and before we concur too heartily with the verdict of an age subsequent to the man it lionizes we ought at least to analyze that age and test its health its virtues and its values The fact that Van Gogh's pictures are now selling for twice as many sovereigns as he, in his most hopeful and sanguine moments, thought that they would realize in francs, is the most deceptive and the most misleading feature about his work. In any case, it should neither prepossess us in his favor nor prejudice us against him. In a world governed largely by the commercial principle which places quantity before quality, at a period in history, When journalism, with all its insidious power, can, like the famous Earl of Warwick, make and unmake kings at will. Finally, on a continent in which all canons in respect of right living, religion, art, morality, and politics have been blasted to the four winds, what does it signify that a work of art which thirty years ago was not thought to be worth twenty five francs now sells for two hundred pounds sterling? It signifies simply nothing whatsoever. Would anybody venture to assert that everything which today is selling at two hundred times the price at which it was selling thirty years ago is, on that account, worthy of particular admiration and respect. I mean, of course, from people of taste, not from hawkers, peddlers, and chapmen. End of section one. Recording by Elizabeth Solog Bethlehem, Pennsylvania